some time, and uh, we're taking a little bit of a summer break. So last week, we had uh, visiting one of our visiting missionaries, Ron uh, <clears throat> Whistler with uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators, and uh, one of the things that stood out to me in Ron's message last week was praying for the person of peace in your life, the person who is open to God's word. And so I hope you've been praying about that and looking for those people of peace that God may be bringing into your lives. Today we are entering into just a little mini-series, two weeks, this week and next week, uh, and then we'll begin back in John in September when, when uh, we start again in the fall. Uh, but today we start this new series entitled Gratitude is Greater Than Greed. We're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 4, both this week and next week. And this morning, we're talking about a life of satisfaction for Philippians 4, verses 10 through 14. If you want to turn there, we'll be there in just a few moments. And I wanted to start by just sharing a little bit of a, a story about my life. I was 18 years old, and I was working two part-time jobs. I was going to uh, college for the first time, and, uh, and I was in my first apartment. And so it was an exciting time and a scary time. And uh, during that period of time, my brother was living in, in Japan, and he knew that I loved electronics. And so he bought for me a Sony compact disc player. Now, at that time, they were quite rare. Uh, it was very early in the release in the United States, and so I was one of the few people I knew that had one of these. It was still the era of vinyl records and cassette tapes. Remember those? Remember those old relics? Uh, now, the only CD that I had to play on this player was one that came with it all the way from Japan, and it had Japanese pop music on it. Now, I couldn't understand the music, and I honestly couldn't stand the music, but I sure was enthralled by the crispness of the sound, and so I couldn't wait to get to a record store. Remember those? They used to have those around to buy my first compact disc, and it wasn't cheap. But I remember the album still, all these years later, Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA. And I brought that home, and I put it in my compact disc player. And after a few days of listening to that album, th first through headphones, and then through my 1970s era, all-in-one stereo system, remember those? I convinced myself that this idyllic, amazing-sounding machine deserved better than that old set of speakers that I bought for five bucks at a garage sale. Well, I happened to know a friend that I went to high school with. He was working in an electronics store, and so I went there to visit him with the intention of getting uh, a pair of new speakers. I thought they'd be around $125 at the time. Well, the short story is that in the six months or so since I'd seen James in high school, somebody had turned him into a highly skilled salesman. And James convinced me that my new CD player not only deserved two new speakers, but four. And to fully appreciate the power of the sound of my compact disc player, I would also need a new amplifier and an equalizer and a tuner. Now, one problem, how to pay for all this desperately needed new stereo equipment as a college student working two part-time jobs. Well, it was then that my good friend James introduced me to the world of consumer finance. Remember that? And the installment plan. And so after some paperwork and a couple of phone calls for approval and a mere two hours later, I was driving home in my $200 beater car that I could hardly afford gas for 
with a $2,000 stereo system in boxes in the back seat. And my payments were just $79 a month for the next four years. You can do the math later. It was a lot more than a $2,000 stereo system. But I loved that system. I listened to it every day. I would invite friends over to my apartment to show it off. I would continually apologize to my neighbors for the volume level. And I was content for a while. Until a month or two later, in my mailbox comes the latest issue of Stereo Review Magazine. Now, imagine my chagrin as I realized that my top-of-the-line hi-fi system was not ranked as highly as when I first purchased it. There were new and better and superior components available. What was I to do? Suddenly, my stereo pride and satisfaction became discontentment and annoyance as I began to long for the new and improved equipment coming out in the marketplace. And rather than joyfully lie on the carpet in my apartment, taking in the deep bass, bass and the crisp high-end sounds of my stereo, I thumbed through copies of that magazine, wishing that I had something more, something better. And so my gratitude for that awesome stereo system slowly turned into greed for something I didn't have. Well, today, as I mentioned, we're beginning this two-week mini-series exploring this question. How can we find gratitude in a world that is filled with greed? And to find the answer, we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14. I want to read a, a section of that together. The words are on the screen. This is from the New Living Translation. It's a more modern translation. I hope it will help you a little bit uh, to understand the, the context here. So beginning in uh, Philippians 4.10, let's read this together. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know that you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Amen. The word of God. Well, these are the last few comments from a letter from the Apostle Paul written from jail as he writes to his dear friends in the city of Philippi, the Philippian church, far across the Mediterranean Sea from where Paul was. The theme of the entire letter really has been, uh, could be summed up in one word, rejoice. And this concluding section echoes that theme very well, I think. It's amazing that although Paul is a prisoner in a Roman, uh, of the Roman emperor, he's chained to a guard day and night, restricted from going about the work that he so loves, preaching and reaching out to the regions beyond, he nevertheless writes a letter 
that is the most rejoicing, the most triumphant of all his letters in the New Testament. And the reason that he can rejoice in such distressing circumstances is that he has discovered what he calls the secret of being grateful in all circumstances. This is the secret of the Apostle Paul, and it is the secret of every victorious follower of Christ, rejoicing with gratitude in a greedy and a corrupt world. Now, this letter closes on a very practical note. Paul wants his readers to understand two key principles so that they also might experience this gratitude in the world filled with greed. So we're going to look at both of those principles, one today and one next week. All right? And so principle number one is satisfaction. Satisfaction. As I thought about that word, I immediately back flashed back to the, the rock and roll era of my past, and I thought of good old Mick Jagger. Can't get no satisfaction. Remember that? I looked up Mick Jagger this week. He just turned 80 last month, and he still can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> but friends, when we rest in satisfaction, it helps us to find gratitude in this greed-filled world. Gratitude comes when we are satisfied with our station in life. It comes when we become content with all of our circumstances. We saw that Paul wrote in verse 12, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty one, with plenty or with little. I know how to get by. The Philippian church had sent Paul some money to assist him while he was in prison. And so while Paul writes back and he thanks them for this gift that they'd sent, he takes an opportunity to declare his own experience of learning how to live a life of contentment. And I think this is a great problem in our day, isn't it? If there was ever an age where men and women wrestled more with the problem of discontentment, I don't know when it would be. But our, our culture, it continually pressures us to, to stay in style, to get the latest or the greatest thing, to obtain a, a higher standard of living or a, a wider display of some of the quote-unquote better things of life whether it's a new stereo system or a new tube of toothpaste. You need the new, improved, better version. And yet Paul declares that he has learned how to face these pressures and in any circumstance, he has learned to be genuinely content. And I think in the text there are three things about his statement of contentment or satisfaction that I'd especially like to look at this morning. The first one of these is that satisfaction comes when we understand we're not born content. We are not born content. It's important for us to learn and understand that fact. We are not born content. Our natural spirit is to strive to get more. 
The outlook from childhood on is to keep looking for something new, to entertain, to satisfy, at least temporarily, our desires. We are always striving for something. And I think what Paul is saying to us here is that he has learned not only to experience contentment, but what is real and true satisfaction. The process of learning this is to understand a new definition of contentment. Now, I don't know how you might define contentment if you had the opportunity, but I, I suspect that, that many of us might come up with some variation of the idea that contentment is having something else that we don't have. But that's not really an accurate or true definition, is it? I, I read a, a story about a man who put a sign out in the front of his house one day. And uh, the sign said, I will give this house to any person who can prove to me that they're content. Well, after a bit of time, somebody came and knocked at his door and said he saw the sign out front and he wanted to claim the house. And he said, I am perfectly content. And so the homeowner asked him what he meant. And he said, well, I, I have everything I want. I have all the money I need, everything in, the life, in life that could satisfy me. I am perfectly content. And, of course, the man in the house then said, friend, if you're so content, why do you want my house? I think it's a fair question, isn't it? You see, that's a revelation of how subtly these desires for more can creep into our thinking. Just because something's free doesn't mean we need it. So here's what I think might be a, a better definition or, uh, of satisfaction or contentment. Contentment is not having all that you want. Rather, true contentment is wanting only what you have. I love that. I think this is at least a part of the secret that Paul has learned. He's learned that God has created him to love people and use things. But somewhere along the course of life, we tend to reverse that truth and learn to use people and love things. And that's at the core of our problem of dissatisfaction. We are not born content. And since we're not born content, how do we get to that place of satisfaction? Well, next we'll see that satisfaction comes when we understand that we are to view poverty and wealth as equal trials. That's interesting, isn't it? Have you ever thought about wealth being a trial, a hardship in your life? Most of us think, well, if I just had a few more bucks in my bank account, I'd be content until we get a few more. And then we think, if I just had a few more, then I might be content. But we don't often think of having more as being a trial. But Paul understands this clearly. He sees poverty and wealth as equal. Now, that's not the usual perspective, but this is something that must be learned. In verse 11, Paul wrote, Not that I ever was in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. So Paul says, I've never been in need. Because whatever I have is all that I need. 
That's, that's quite an interesting perspective, isn't it? You see, we are naturally inclined to view poverty or lack as a severe trial, a hardship. Of course. But then we're trained to think that abundance is a great blessing. And so what do we end up doing? We end up chasing the American dream, right? With the ultimate goal of having everything we want so that we can be comfortable. I don't want to be rich. I just want to be comfortable, right? And that kind of thinking indicates that we really don't know how to define true contentment. Remember, it's not having all you want but wanting what you have. You see, both poverty and wealth are demanding extremes. Both are huge weights to the human spirit. Both tend to twist and distort and degrade our personality. And both are trials of severe intensity, and they can be destructive to our life if we're not careful. But our friend, the Apostle Paul, has learned to face them both. So the one thing to note here is that he has learned how to have victory over both of these imposters. In verse 13, he makes this memorable statement when he says, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, friends, I want us to see something about this. This is more than a quote to put on a plaque and hang on your wall, all right? This is more than a mantra for those who are goal-driven. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and so I can be successful, successful in my endeavors, whether they're sports or business or whatever it might be. I've seen many, many people, this is a, a life quote on their Facebook page or whatever, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But friends, it is much more than that. It is a biblical truth rooted in contentment, satisfaction with what we already have. It's not about being successful at getting more or being more successful, or achieving more. That's not what this quote is about. It is rooted in contentment in Christ Jesus. A contentment that helps us to rise above our own selfish will. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's talking about being content, living in whatever circumstance we're in. That's the theme that runs through nearly every verse of this letter, a continual harking back to, of the apostle to that great discovery in his life when he learned that he had nothing in himself. One of his letters, Paul talks about how all of his accomplishments, all of the things that he's done in the past, and he did a lot, he calls them the dung heap the poop of his life. That's what he talks about. Because he understands that all of those things were nothing apart from him being in Christ Jesus. All of his background, all of his ambitions, all of his abilities, all that he's counted as gain was really useless. 
useless as far as what he could do for the cause of Christ. He learned that he had nothing, was nothing, could do nothing. He writes of a life fully adequate to meet any demand placed upon it because he understands what it means to be in Christ Jesus because it was the outliving of an indwelling life. Christ in me, the hope of glory, Paul writes at one point. It was practicing that confidence that whatever Jesus Christ once was in the days of his flesh, in meeting every situation, he still is. Think about that for a moment. How successful was Jesus in the eyes of this world? How successful was he as a, as a rabbi with his raggedy group of 12 guys, one of whom turned against him? The rest of them abandoned him and finally came crawling back to him. He ended up being arrested and killed. How successful is that? In the eyes of this world, it was an utter failure. But in the eyes of God, it was the greatest triumph of all time. That's the life of Jesus. That's the secret that Paul has learned to live with as well. Jesus is very successful. And he can bring true success and contentment into our lives. And he's available to continually, continually walk with us. This is the secret that the Apostle Paul is setting forth here. Why do you think it is? Why is it that we are just so quick to complain when we're put under any kind of pressure at all? Is that just me? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I get irritated when traffic doesn't go my way. I get irritated when it's too hot outside or too cold outside or too smoky. Oh, what's this about? Any kind of pressure and we get distressed. We get anxious. We get concerned. We get worried. What is it that causes that? What is it that keeps us hungering for abundance, luxury, health, ease, comfort, the next new thing? Well, friends, isn't it because sometimes, often, without thinking, we are really expecting God to arrange everything in the universe to suit our personal desires? We don't come out and say that. But sometimes that's what we expect. How come God's not blessing me? How come she's successful? How come he's healthy? How come they don't suffer like I do? What's up, God? Why have you abandoned me? You see, we expect God to put everything in order in the way that we want it. And then we get upset when things don't quite work out the way that we think they ought to. You see, friends, that self-centered attitude and that dissatisfaction that comes with it, that will only fade 
It will only fade when we begin to view poverty and wealth as equal trials. And when we can do that, it helps us to understand what true satisfaction is. True satisfaction will come into our life when we understand we are not born content. So that's going to be a continual struggle. When we understand that poverty and wealth are equal trials to overcome. And finally, true satisfaction comes when we understand that we are not our own. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. This is true lordship. Understanding Christ as master, as lord, as ruler. You're not the boss of you. And I'm not the boss of me. If we're followers of Jesus, we have a boss. And his name is Jesus. And we belong to him. And it's what he wants that counts, not what we want. And friends, when we begin to recognize this and when we begin to see that that desire of God, God's desire for us as our ruler, our master, is a good desire. And you know why we know that? Because God is love. And he is always giving of himself to meet the needs of others. That's the kind of God that we serve. And so when we begin to step into the arena of contentment and satisfaction, we begin to experience more and more of God's goodness. And God's goodness is not tied up in how much or how little we have, but in how much he loves us and how much he desires for us. You see, we've often forgotten that we're not our own, that we are bought with a price, and it isn't ours any longer to direct our lives. And that's crazy thinking in this American culture that we live in, where we're the deciders. I'm in charge of me. Who are you to tell me what to do? We honor things like people that are self-made, They went from nothing to millionaires by hard work and determination. They went from nothing to star athletes or celebrities. And we honor all of that as good and the nothingness as a detriment. But that's not what God honors at all. See, it's up to God and the simplest acceptance of that fact will revolutionize our attitude and release within us the ability to be satisfied, whatever the circumstances are. Paul says he's learned to say, I can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he's learned that everything that comes to him is permitted by God in order that people may see the wonder of God who loves people and uses things. Think about that for a moment. God wants to show his wonder, his glory through you. He wants people to look at you and say, wow, why are they so content? Why are they so satisfied with life when they don't have anything? 
when they don't have the newest and the greatest and the latest? How can they be content and satisfied? And we can say, it's because of Christ in me that I can do all things. True satisfaction comes when we understand we are not our own. Ah, oh, Paris, the Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef, the Pyramids of Giza. According to a, a television show a few years ago, these are, are four, just four of the 50 things that you must see before you die. You gotta see them. It's gotta be on your bucket list. And that kind of thinking that flows out of our entertainment culture has created books and other t television shows, bestseller lists. Here's what you gotta do. In fact, it spawned a whole new genre, right? Of bucket list compilations. As well as things to see before you die, there's a host of other things to add to the list. 100 things to do before you die, which includes things like uh, milking a cow. That's kind of weird. I don't know. 100 things to eat before you die, like uh, crocodile. I don't know. Dozens of books, websites that urge you to complete their lists, they offer things to listen to, movies to watch, sensations to experience, and the list goes on. And, and that this genre has been so successful, I think it reveals something significant about us. It highlights what has become a, a great concern for many people. We want to experience the best of what's out there before it's too late. And that's a real first world problem, isn't it? For those of us that don't have to worry about putting a roof over our heads or food on the table, our greatest fear seems to be getting to the end of life and feeling like we've not gotten our money's worth. Man, I didn't get to finish my list. And it, all of that is feeding into an ever-growing pressure upon us. Fear of missing out. FOMO. You heard of that? It's an anxiety prevalent enough to be the subject of study by psychologists. We are increasingly desperate not to miss the best of what's out there, and we're plagued by the fear that we might be missing out. Life is short. The world's big. We only got one shot. We've got to get it done. Live life to the fullest. Fulfill your desires. But brothers and sisters... The perspective of God's word is very, very different. Yes, the world is big. And yes, life certainly is short. But we know that this life is not all there is. For followers of Jesus Christ, the brief life on earth that we experience is only just the entryway into an eternity that is filled with joy and fulfillment and ultimate contentment and satisfaction beyond even what our hearts can imagine. What God has prepared for those who love him. How can we alleviate our FOMO? How can we find gratitude in this greedy, corrupt world that we live in? 
Well, friends, it's through a life of true satisfaction and a sharp focus on what is yet to come. And so my prayer for us today is that God's prepared future for us become our preferred future, our goals, our passions, our longings. May they be for what God has ahead for us, not on the things we are lacking in this life, as together we seek true satisfaction. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, that illuminates who you want us to be, how you want us to think. Father, how you want us to shape our lives, the priorities that you call for us to have. Lord, all of these things and more are found in your word. Father, I thank you for the, the precious freedom that we have to gather together on a Sunday morning so that we can remind one another of these deep, important spiritual truths, Lord, because the rest of the week we live in this greedy world. Father, that is just designed to push us towards discontentment. But Father, may we remember that true contentment only comes from knowing you, walking with you, resting in your plan and your purpose. Father, may your preferred future be our preferred future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a closing song. And uh, each Sunday, we like to let you know that some of our elders are here available to pray with you. I see today it's uh, Tim Farnsworth, Randy Wheeler. They're back there ready to, to pray with you. And this is one of the most important ministries that our elders can do, the shepherds of our flock, is to pray for the sheep. And so perhaps... Perhaps you have some questions about your own spiritual journey or your goals or your passions, whatever they might be. Maybe it's somebody else that you'd like to pray for. The elders are ready to, to pray with you back there in the prayer corner. We encourage you as we sing the song, you can just make your way back there. But I pray today that satisfaction will be very real in your life as you think about the contentment that comes from knowing Jesus, because it is the best contentment of all. Let's stand together as we sing this closing song.